In recent years, students have come under fire from the media. Our generation, critics claim, is predisposed to echo chamber thinking, closed-mindedness and so-called cancel culture. Given that our cultural diet is fed by polarising social media algorithms and clickbait headlines, this is perhaps inevitable. Yet my experience of tutorials, seminars and pitching meetings assures me that students are more capable of constructive debate than ever. So, here at Discourse, we're setting the record straight. Every month, we'll be discussing controversial, topical stories with members of the academic community, no dissing allowed. Through candid, agreeable discussion, we'll shed light on the nuances of each argument. Who knows, we might even change minds in the process. Morning everyone, it's definitely too late to be wishing anyone a happy new year, but welcome everyone to our new year of discourse brought to you by The Saint. It's definitely going to be a big one where journalism is concerned. 2024 is set to be dominated by global political affairs. More than half the world's population will cast their votes in at least 64 elections. And the shadow of international warfare continues to threaten global democracy, not to mention our moral and ethical compasses. You might be pleased to hear then that this week we'll be leaving geopolitics well alone and we'll be focusing on the theme of medicine instead. As ever, though, I would like to stress that all opinions expressed in this episode belong to the individual speakers and do not reflect the opinions of the saint. So joining me, we have two repeat guests, Sophia Palou, a third year IR and philosophy student and member of Lumsden Society. And we also have Jasmine Sykes, our newly appointed viewpoint editor here at the saint, who is in her fourth year studying philosophy. Perhaps this is unfair, given that you've both featured on here before, but for those listeners who haven't been keeping up with our every episode, it would be great to have a couple of hot takes from you guys just to get the ball rolling. Uh, So, Sophia, would you like to start us off? Yep, my hot take is a a pretty low-key one, but um, against a lot of common belief, I love when people signpost what they're about to say in discussions, so, you know, jumping off, connecting to this person's uh, point. I love when people do it. I think it's the cutest thing ever, and I think it's a sort of meta-linguistic convention. Gosh, well, mine is slightly less um, philosophical, but I think it's acceptable to be a vegetarian and still eat haggis on Burns Night. Not in the slightest influenced by last night's shenanigans. Yeah, I'm not sure about the signposting one. The, the thing that really gets me is when people say your name more than it should be necessary. So, so, so Jazz, what do you think of this? Uh, Anyway, we'll see if uh, you guys pick up on us doing any of that in this episode today. Uh, But I thought we'd start with something of a good news story. Being January, it's always useful to have something a bit positive to start off the day. So, Sophia, would you like to introduce your thoughts about the Libmeldi gene therapy breakthrough? Absolutely. I'd love to start us off if I can signpost with that. Um, The issue that I wanted to talk about today is a very heartwarming one in the world of healthcare and of drug prices. And this is that a 19-month-old baby girl called Teddy has become the first child in the UK to receive a life-saving gene therapy treatment for the fatal disorder, and I'm just going to say the acronym, uh, called MLD. And this drug, its brand name is Lameldi, and it's a very expensive drug, the most expensive drug in the EU, which has a list price of $2.8 million. Um, and the NHS negotiated a significant confidential discount last year to make the treatment available to NHS patients. Um, this is in keeping with their long-term plan to providing the latest cutting-edge treatments and therapies for patients, and this is just one instance of a very uh, positive trend. So I kind of wanted to start our discussion off with this 
um, positive instance before going into the issue of healthcare drug pricing, pharmaceutical drug pricing, and patents as a whole, because I'm sure if any of you guys have been in these conversations, it's not that positive of one. Um, the way I kind of wanted to break this down is three discussions in terms of drug pricing that are usually had. Uh, one of them is patents. So the way that we've set um, kind of the UK, Canada, and the US all have similar system to create basically what's called periods of exclusivity. So the idea is to incentivize innovation by giving these drug manufacturers the opportunity to get their money back by periods of exclusivity in the forms of patents. Um, so no generic forms of a drug or life-saving treatment can come on for 10 to 20 years. And, and so I think this goes into a conversation about innovation, which is a big conversation that we have um, when talking about drug pricing. Yeah, so thanks so much for drawing our attention to this story, Sophia, because it was one that I hadn't really heard about. And I think these sort of breakthroughs often go quite underreported, especially because MLD is an extremely rare inherited disorder. Um, but it's just, this is an, a massive breakthrough because uh, MLD actually has no other treatments. And currently the only way to deal with it is by giving patients who tend to be very young children 24 hour care um, of whom around half will die within five years of the disease's onset. It's basically a, a degenerative disease uh, with no positive uh, prognosis uh, uh, other than this treatment. Uh, in terms of what you were talking about cost and patents, I found it really interesting that Orchard Therapeutics, who developed this drug, uh, have actually really struggled with funding. I know that when they uh, expanded to go to the US, they had to make lots of people in the UK redundant. Um, they've since done a fundraising campaign for up to $188 million, um, and they're funded basically by private equity and venture capital. And you mentioned that the NHS acquired this drug on a hugely discounted price, but I just wonder how sustainable it really is to be making these incredible, but obviously extremely expensive drugs, which, you know, are so expensive to produce and maybe aren't actually making the returns that these companies require. I mean, the price is incredibly high at 2.8 million per dose. Um, and that reflects really high production and development costs. It took something like 20 years to develop the drug, and I think the first human trials took place in 2010. And it was granted EU appro approval only in 2020. Um, but of course, the cost needs to be weighed against the costs of treating MLD patients as they gradually become completely dependent, um, tube-fed, and lose all their senses. So in the long run, perhaps that cost is balanced off against that. And then, obviously, in addition to that, there is the pain and suffering of families that it's weighed against. Yeah, I 100% agree that in terms of an individual patient, uh, the cost is definitely worth it. Um, I'm more concerned that for the companies themselves, if they're not able to make the returns on their investments, whether they'll still be able to operate um, and continue to develop drugs for these rare genetic disorders. I know that Orchard Therapeutics is currently looking at some other similar diseases which affect children. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's important, obviously, that they can continue to do this really important work. Um, Sophia, did you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, so the pricing is really interesting about, um, you know, the return on investment that uh, these drug manufacturers should get. But I think that 
this situation is very different both on the consumer and the manufacturer because um, I saw a great kind of analogy that said if a car salesman told you he spent two billion on uh, research and development on this car uh, you wouldn't pay for that um, so in other areas this idea of cost and research and development isn't as heavily factored into um, as drug manufacturing is but obviously it's very expensive to develop a drug it's hugely um, expensive to do the trials um, but the biggest issue again with this high pricing is the consumers aren't normal consumers either like they're not rational consumers in the strict sense they're patients they can't afford to say no to the treatment they can't afford to go and look for a better option look for a fair market value because there isn't one um, because of the government granted monopoly due to patents so it's not something that a solution that we're going to get <laughs> to in this discussion but those are two other things I wanted to touch upon. I don't know. We've got high ambitions here at this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's also really interesting. Obviously, in the UK, we're extremely lucky to have access to free healthcare on the NHS. And this drug is available on the NHS, as you mentioned, Sphere. Um, but obviously, that the same cannot be said of a lot of other European countries. Uh, there are five centres in the UK which provide the treatment. And while they will give it free of charge to uh, British children, they're not able to do so for Europeans who come to visit the hospitals to receive treatment. Um, and I also wonder how, um, especially before it was available in the UK, um, people were sort of driven to go and take part in these case studies that were sort of part of the process of approval. And as you say, it's not exactly a liberal choice because people have no other option. There is no alternative treatment that could help them. And it does seem to me a little bit unethical in a way that the only way to receive treatment free of charge is often to go and take part in research on drugs that haven't fully been approved yet. Yeah, well, I suppose that is also the broader question of whether the pricing for these kinds of drugs should play out in a totally free market approach. Like, is it morally correct to profit off the suffering of others? And as you say, you know, economics assumes rational consumers, but how rational really are you being in the sense of the word when your only choice is to consume a drug that costs however much money? Um, so, yes, we need free market economics to kind of... Uh, promote innovation and research but at the same time perhaps we need to also combine that with moral considerations in a situation such as healthcare. Yeah, and I think that not to signpost but I think that point really does encapsulate why I wanted to bring um, this issue uh, to this discussion because first of all we saw one successful instance of providing um, affordable um, gene therapy um, but I think a very common response to somebody lamenting about the high prices of drugs is, well, no, there has to be uh, room for innovation, room for research and development. I think that's a very canned answer. And I think that this instance shows that we are able to uh, provide affordable health care. Obviously, it's an individual instance. But um, that, that innovation argument doesn't necessarily work or shouldn't necessarily work. Yeah, I'd also just like to raise a slightly broader ethical issue that I have with gene therapies in general. Um, so I don't know um, how much listeners at home know about the way that these treatments work, but essentially uh, babies have to have some stem cells removed, uh, which are then modified with an enzyme which 
treats them of their disorder in the <laughs> simplest terms possible. Uh, but it involves having chemotherapy to kill off the remaining unhealthy cells. Um, and the process is called Bolsafan conditioning. And it has some really alarming and very common side effects. I don't know if you guys looked into this, um, but it can produce really low white blood cell counts, um, deadly infections, anemia, stomatitis, um, consistent vomiting, hair loss, liver damage, and quite often ovarian failure in girls leading to infertility. So it's hardly an ideal situation. And again, I caveat it by saying that this is the only treatment available. So obviously people are going to, you know, take the approach that something is better than nothing. But I don't know whether it's right to keep on investing. We're talking millions and millions of pounds here into an industry that is fundamentally flawed and whether maybe we should be examining a different means of treating these people. Yeah, I guess my only comment to that would be, um, yeah, uh, what responsibilities do um, these therapies and treatments have to their patients? So if it does rid them of MLD, but gives them a whole host of other um, debilitating conditions, you know, when does treatment stop? Like, I, I think that's a whole other conversation. Um, and is is there a case this might, this is just a question is this life-saving gene therapy maybe flashier? And that's why there are so much um, so much research and funding going into it because their return on investment is going to be better if they're able to brand, hey, we just saved this 19-year-old girl from MLD versus the subsequent fallout and the lack of research being given to that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it probably is also worth saying that um, like the long-term trajectory of patients who've been treated with LibMLD Lib does appear to be quite good. Um, it just, you know, it seems pretty awful that these children have to, or their parents often, because the children are so young, have to make this decision between, you know, effectively, do they allow their child to degenerate in front of their eyes or do they subject them to quite an invasive treatment, which could lead to blood cancers um, and a whole host of other issues. But, you know, as we touched upon earlier, I'm not sure this podcast is able to answer these big questions <laughs> um, and... We did brand this as a good news story. So <laughs> sorry for undermining that for everyone at home. But I know I think that the thrust of this story is very positive and it already has saved countless children, it seems. Um, only seven or eight people in the UK are eligible to have it a year. But um, that's a life changing instance for them. So, yeah. So from a good news story that impacts the unfortunate few, I'd like to discuss a more sobering story which relates to the measles outbreak affecting Europe on a scale not seen since the 1970s. Um, this is an issue that's been slowly developing over the last few years, but has come to a real head in the last few weeks. Essentially, the UK Health Security Agency has been forced to declare a national incident over the alarming rise in measles cases in the West Midlands, and we're particularly talking about Birmingham. So the UK was officially declared measles-free in 2017, but there have been over 200 cases in the West Midlands since last October, and Birmingham's Children's Hospital reported seeing more than 50 children needing treatment in the last month alone. You might be thinking that this isn't that serious. We've already had a pandemic after all, and measles symptoms are essentially cold-like, with the characteristic rash usually disappearing on its own after around 10 days. Um, however, measles is a really serious disease and one that should be taken seriously. 
Many people have forgotten actually how bad it could be, given that it practically disappeared in the UK. But the disease has a considerably higher R rate than COVID of around 15 and poses serious threats to pregnant women, unvaccinated babies and also people whose immune system is compromised, for example, if they're receiving chemotherapy. Like COVID, uh, it can also be extremely disruptive. Children in affected areas of Birmingham have been forced to self-isolate and are currently missing up to three weeks of school. Um, but the main reason I think this topic warrants discussion is the reasons behind its spread. Um, because after all, this is effectively entirely avoidable. The MMR vaccine, which was developed in 1971, has a 99% success rate after only two doses and herd immunity is achieved when 95% of the population are vaccinated. Um, yet in London and Birmingham, only a quarter of five-year-olds have had the vaccine. Um, sorry, a quarter of the five-year-olds have not had the vaccine, which is still a considerable number. And the overall population is only around 85% vaccinated at the moment. Uh, part of this is due to Andrew Wakefield, who claimed in 1998 that the vaccine was linked to aut autism. But this has since been comprehensively disproven. So there is no subject. real rational explanation for non-vaccination. The most effective areas are, there, are where there's I have my own thoughts about why about this might be the case, programs. but I think this so is maybe a good time to open the story up more to you kind guys of a bureaucratic, bureaucratic political issue than actually one about misinformation. Um, I think it's quite interestingly the bogus claims though made by Andrew Wakefield do still have an impact because children not vaccinated are now more reluctant to get and now adults and now causing the spread. So that is one way in which those kind of anti-vax claims are still an impact. But I'm not sure it's entirely to do with the kind of anti-vax movement post-COVID. Yeah, well, it's so interesting because it's really difficult to boil it down to a single group who are choosing not to be vaccinated. Um, so even health professionals and people who are degree educated and people from all demographic economic backgrounds seem to have a degree of vaccine hesitancy. So it's been quite difficult for the NHS to sort of get to the root of the issue. Um, yeah, I know COVID is quite an easy excuse to point to. And it's probably worth saying that the uptake of the vaccine had been decreasing before COVID as well. But I don't know about you, but I just feel like there's a degree of vaccine fatigue after COVID. We all had to go and get so many vaccines. Um, and sort of faith in the efficacy of vaccines went down because a lot of people were vaccinated and then they still developed COVID. And yes, it might have been milder because they had received the vaccine, but people might not necessarily have made that connection. So I don't know what you think, Sophia. Yeah, the <clears throat> two things that I'd say about it is you were talking about um, coverage and from a bureaucratic sense, it you know might be nice to continue educating these people. <laughs> um, but I also think that people, I saw a quote that said, it's poor people, people who are highly mobile and don't stay in one place. Um, so these are people that maybe, maybe people see vaccines as kind of this administrative step that they don't have maybe the time, the ability to get it. I don't know how necessarily easy it is to get uh, vaccines in the UK, but if it's not a comprehensive school program, like I think that's the easiest way to distribute vaccines. Um, so interestingly, non-vaccination seems to particularly affect inner city areas. Um, and this is both due to the fact that NHS services are particularly overstretched in these areas. Uh, but there are also some broader demographic uh, influences at play. Um, so someone was discussing why West Birmingham has been particularly badly affected. And they came to the conclusion that it might have something to do with uh, the Somali community who are particularly uh, prevalent in that area. 
Um, the Somali community, uh, I don't know if listeners are aware, have unexplained high rates of child autism, uh, which has led many to distrust the MMR vaccination in the same vein as Andrew Wakefield's now very much debunked claims. So actually, yeah, maybe this comes back to the issue of bureaucracy and communication and the NHS needs to ensure that it's doing better community outreach schemes. Yeah, well, the NHS has recently published its um, vaccination strategy um, in relation to the MMR vaccine, which covers measles. Um, But the current aim is for full implementation by 2025 to 2026, which is obviously quite a long time away. And one thing that really struck me reading that was it's remarkable how quickly we seem to have forgotten the lessons of the pandemic. Like, Rosie, you spoke of vaccine fatigue, and certainly that is something that people have experienced in the wake of the pandemic. But the vaccination scheme was really incredible. I mean, yes, people still got COVID, but it massively reduced the effects and allowed life to go back to normal. I read somewhere that it had saved up to 20 million lives worldwide. It's it's remarkable. And the fact that in response to this crisis, the NHS is publishing a strategy that is so long in, in scope, just seems to have completely forgotten those lessons. Yeah, I agree. Um, And I think there is a distrust in our health services more broadly, which isn't necessarily um, justified. Um, You know, our immunisation schemes are amazing. Um, This was such a breakthrough drug when it was released in the 1970s. It was hailed as one of the greatest achievements of public health (laughs) um, of the century. And yet people aren't giving it the recognition uh, or treating it with the sort of severity that they should be. Um, I think one issue as well is that many adults are asymptomatic. So those uh, who were unvaccinated in the Andrew Wakefield generation can now be carrying the disease without realising and appreciating that they could be having a very severe impact on those categories who I mentioned who were higher risk. Yeah, um, I was just kind of uh, going off of your point here that I saw a study that said Britain's parents' confidence in vaccines is 90%. So there's a lot of parents who are confident in the vaccines, ideally because, you know, they know that they work. And it might be an elementary thing to say, but these 10% that have, if we're accepting the idea that it's been politicized, which obviously I think it has and it has had an effect, and it happened in the 90s with um, Wakefield also politicizing these vaccines, It's an elementary thing to say that this is something that really feels like it shouldn't be politicized. You know, we we ask for a cure to um, something that is affecting citizens and is affecting people and we are given a cure. So it's it's a shame that uh, that these ramifications from a seemingly easily solvable problem, we still see them today. Yeah. And I think, as you mentioned, political factors are at play, but I think also it just it's emblematic of the wider relationship between the British community and the NHS. And there does seem to be a bit of a a disconnect. I mean, the NHS itself is very disconnected. It calls itself a national health service, but it's really just thousands of hospitals sort of broadly working in tandem. Um, And so a lot of people, I think, don't even know that they haven't received the vaccination. I mean, I don't really know how I would access my vaccination record. Um, I think a lot of people apparently didn't realise that vaccination schemes continued during COVID. And obviously there was a reluctance to go into hospitals because of the additional danger they posed. So, yeah, I don't know whether maybe it points to 
more issues about how our healthcare is governed in general and how much responsibility the individual versus the NHS should have about, you know, the care of the wider community. I mean, obviously, herd immunity is very important. So it, it's, it's not just for your own good that you are vaccinated in this sense. Yeah, I mean, I think the British relationship with the NHS is very strange and very British in a lot of ways. On the one hand, we revere the NHS and we regard ourselves highly for having a, a health service that is free for everybody. At the same time, we like to berate the, the NHS. Mm. Um, I think also perhaps we just increasingly as a whole see ourselves as kind of above disease and above the natural world in a lot of ways. I think that explains a lot of our action towards the climate as well. Um, mm. But we forget that we are subject to these infectious diseases because now we have so much medicine at our disposal to treat them. And at the time we talked about COVID being unprecedented, but what's really unprecedented is the period of time before COVID when we weren't suffering from all these infectious diseases. I mean, history is littered with plagues and viruses. Mm. Um, perhaps if, if COVID should have woken us up to anything, it's the fact that we are far from immune from these things, that we rely on highly specialised, um, advanced medicine to cope with these things. Yeah, I think that's really a pertinent point. Um, I also think that people, is they're sort of adhering to the cult of the individual rather than the idea of the community at large. Um, obviously, with COVID as well, the overall success of uh, the disease prevention was contingent on herd immunity and enough people being vaccinated. But a lot of people sort of prioritise their own idea of their health and their own control over their health over maybe the broader populace at large, um, which, you know, opens up a whole minefield of uh, ethical discussion. But I just thought that it was an interesting, interesting link to this story. Okay, so last but not least, we're going to turn from the world of human medicine to the pretty sci-fi developments in animal conservation efforts around the world. Uh, Jazz is perfectly placed to tell us more about one particular story, having just returned from Kenya herself. So I'm keen to hear what you think about the embryo transfer efforts on the essentially extinct northern white rhino. Yeah, so this is a really remarkable development um, where the world's first IVF rhino pregnancy could save the technically extinct northern white rhinos. So a team of scientists at BioRescue, which is a consortium backed by the German government aiming to halt extinctions, have achieved the first ever IVF rhino pregnancy using southern white rhinos, um, successfully transferring a lab-created rhino embryo into a surrogate mother. Hugely challenging procedure. They've had to figure out how to collect eggs from a two-ton animal, how to implant them, how to implant the embryo inside the reproductive tract, which is apparently almost two meters inside the animal. Um, so the hope is that the procedure can now be repeated with northern white rhinos, a close cousin of the southern white rhinos. Um, this species is technically extinct because the last male northern white died in 2018 and only two females remain at the Olpegeta Conservancy in Kenya, which I recently uh, saw them there. So with no hope of reproduction, the species will die out with the death of these two females. Scientists have previously harvest, harvested embryos from the younger of these two females and collected sperm from 
two northern white rhinos before they died. However, neither of the two remaining female white rhinos can carry a pregnancy due to age and health problems, hence the hope that the IVF procedure with southern white rhinos has prompted. The aim is to implant the embryo inside the womb of a su surrogate southern white rhino. Actually, adding more northern whites through IVF alone can't save the species, as there wouldn't be enough genetic diversity to create a viable population. So the biorescue team are simultaneously working on an even more experimental technique, attempting to create rhinosperm and eggs from stem cells uh, to go on to produce embryos. So it sounds like a really happy story. Um, but some do have concerns about the project. We um, all know how happy stories how, end yeah, <laughs> on this podcast. On we can make everything negative. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, some do have concerns about the project, arguing that pouring money and resources into a species which is essentially good as lost could be better used in saving a more viable species. I very strongly feel that we have a mor moral obligation to save species like the Northern Whites. After all, behind their extinction is not some kind of natural evolutionary pressure, but mankind, through the consumption of rhino horn, which is commonly used in traditional Chinese medicine, and the market demand for which has prompted illegal rhino poaching. Since it's us who's, who is responsible, I think we have an obligation to save them, but I'm keen to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah, so um, I'm very much of the first school of thought that you mentioned. <laughs> It, it's a very expensive procedure, and I was kind of coming on to this thinking, it's a very cool thing that we can do it, but it's what you just brought up. Should we do it? And the question of responsibility is a really important one because absolutely, we are responsible, but, you know, who is this we? Is it, should we put the onus onto then the poachers or, you know, the people? It's it's the classic question of responsibility, people who are able to pay for it. And if, if also this... Uh, procedure does not save these northern white rhinos if there's not enough biological diversity. I think the moral question is definitely a big one, but the pragmatic concerns is just that it is very expensive. Yeah, and even if it is successful, I guess the additional cost of protecting these rhinos, we know how um, how difficult it is to protect these endangered species. Currently, the two uh, women <laughs> rhinos who remain uh, are under 24-hour armed surveillance. Um, I think it's a really fascinating story and one that definitely does have a glimmer of hope. But I do also think it's probably worth pointing out that uh, this successful embryo transfer wasn't really successful in the full sense because <laughs> the fetus uh, sadly died at 70 days old. Uh, as did the father and the pregnant mother for a whole range of reasons that weren't all connected to the procedure. But I think it just points to how uh, how many variables there are, essentially, that can go wrong. Um, the uh, pregnancy period for rhinos is 16 months. So that's 16 months where the smallest thing could prove uh, entirely catastrophic. Um, also, the embryos are, I think frozen in Italy. Um, so it involves all sorts of logistical maneuvering. And uh, yeah, I think while it's it's a positive story, it's definitely one that uh, isn't at its conclusion, I think it's fair to say, as a, a means of saving the species. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's quite a lighthearted story in the sense that, oh, it's great that we're saving this endangered species. 
But on the other hand, I do think it's really important and not just kind of from a moral point of view, because the long term effects of the loss of such a keystone species in Central Africa could be massively damaging for the ecosystem as, as a whole. So, yes, this is an isolated instance, but the broader implications are, are pretty huge for the environment as a whole. And I think this links to what we just touched on in the last story, our relationship with the natural world. We increasingly see ourselves as kind of masters over the natural world, as it, for it something to be suppressed under us. And I think conservation efforts like this speak to the fact that we are part of the natural world ourselves, something I think increasingly we're forgetting in the modern modern way of life. No, I think that it would... I think it conservation efforts like this would point to an idea that we are still connected to the natural world and that we do still have an obligation to a natural world that we have affected so greatly. Again, I just want to point to the fact that they are functionally extinct, though. Um, so we have lost this. For all intents and purposes, we have lost this keystone species. And so I think maybe efforts might be uh, better suited to say, you know, how have we done this? And, you know, what can we do to prevent it but obviously we might be past the point of prevention and we might be yeah. in the <laughs> in the area of doing active conservation efforts because you know. yeah no, precisely I agree I think it's it's scary that we allowed it to get to this point um and it does kind of seem odd that um you know concerted interest in reviving the species only really came around when <laughs> it, it was to all intents and purposes, impossible because there are no males and females uh, couples remaining. Um, I think if we are going to talk red flags <laughs> with this story, I do think it, it's quite wacky in sci-fi, this whole idea that... So I think they're going to be going to museums to seek out the skulls of dead northern white rhinos to extract these stem cells and then attempt to um, revive the species that way. And... Um, I, I don't know. I just find it a, a bit bizarre. I mean, you could just you could expand that to so many different um, sort of schemes that could be slightly dodgy, to say the least. The sci-fi aspect of it is really interesting. When you get into the region of stem cells and genetic developments, you do very quickly to get to the question of is it OK for humans to play God? Obviously, there are ethical lines that we have to draw in the application of this science. But surely it's exactly these kind of cases where we should be using it. Yeah, um, I just think, I don't know, I find it almost alarming that there are so many easier preventative measures that we could have taken and that we didn't. And again, I don't know whether it sort of points to the kind of kudos and the clout that surrounds these massive experimental schemes, you know, as we were talking about with Lib Meldy, is it more exciting for, you know, this sort of conservation where, as you say, humans almost become God, uh, whereas the less glamorous task of actually just being on the ground and protecting these animals maybe isn't receiving the attention that it deserves. I think the point that you brought up about humans playing God is an interest, almost a double-edged sword in one hand, because we're talking about the domination of humans and human technology on nature, which we've agreed isn't a great thing. And we've, we've gone into a lot of trouble because of that. Um, so should we go further in playing God and go further into this domination and over the natural world in order to save the, the natural world that we have dominated? It's, it's a, it's a weird situation that we found ourselves in. 
Thank you so much for listening to us three humanity students masquerading as women in STEM for the morning. Um, I certainly enjoyed looking into these stories and the ethical questions that they raise, uh, which, by the way, I think makes a pretty strong argument for the ongoing relevance of humanity subjects in our increasingly technological age. Uh, on which note, I should probably reiterate that all views expressed in this episode were those of individual speakers and do not reflect the opinions of the saint. Uh, if we inspired any strong opinions in you listeners, though, we'd love to hear from you on the saint at podcast.com. That's it from us today. And we really hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks time.